0: James chapter four, there we go. James chapter four. While you're turning there, I've just got two quick announcements for you. First is that this Sunday kicks off our backpack drive. Uh, so we have cards at the welcome desk and we are going to be collecting over the next month both backpacks and school supplies. All of the supplies will be going to Gloucester County Schools. The backpacks will be going to ESOL, FreeKind and Food Distribution. So guys, this is just a great way that we can love and serve our community. So I'd encourage you on the way out, grab one of those cards and over the next month, pick up a backpack and some school supplies so that we can be a blessing to others in our community. We're gonna have some bins available that you can come back and drop those off off any time between now and August 14th and the next announcement is that next Sunday after the second service we are going to be having a training for our first impressions ministry, in particular for ushers and greeters. By the way, I just wanted to embarrass them real quick and say what a lovely picture of Bob and Darlene. Uh, but if you are interested in being like Bob and Darlene and serving with our ushers and greeters, make sure you come out next Sunday, uh, July 17th, 12 to 1.30. Lunch will be provided that we're really asking all of our current volunteers to be there. And also, if you're interested in serving, guys, this is an excellent ministry. Uh, if you are interested in serving, you've been coming for a little while, you haven't got plugged in, why don't you come and check it out next Sunday after church? We'd love to have you involved with our First Impressions team. All right, so this morning we're in James chapter four. I wanna start by asking a few questions and please don't answer out loud. I know Scott Owsley was in the first service, so there's less risk in this service of that one, but please don't answer out loud because I don't want this to turn into you know, a biblical counseling session. Um, why did you get in a fight with your spouse this week? Why did you lose your temper and yell at your kids this week? Why is there a coworker that no matter what, you just can't seem to get along with? What is it, in other words, that causes conflict in our lives? This is the question that James is asking in this passage of scripture this morning. In a sinful world, conflict is something that all of us experience every single day. These conflicts range from big to small from the bickering of an old married couple all the way to World War II. Conflict is one of the oldest consequences of sin. And in a post Genesis three world, we will all experience conflict. There's conflict inside of us as believers, as the desires of the flesh wage war against the desires of the spirit. There's conflict outside of us in our lives. There's conflict on a macro scale in the world. And lest we think in this age of progressive optimism that the world is only getting more and more peaceful, well, consider the fact that if we're just talking about wars alone, the 20th century was by far the bloodiest century in human history with a death toll from wars of about 187 million. Aside from that, look at divorce rates. Look at the increasing division in our society along social, political, racial, and religious lines. We could keep multiplying examples. But the point is that conflict is something we all will experience in a sinful world and it ain't getting any better. This text in James is just as relevant as it has ever been. And as followers of Jesus, we need to understand what causes conflict in our lives and what we can do about it how we can be peacemakers. So let me give you the main point of my sermon this morning. Conflict is caused by sinful desires in our hearts and worldliness in our lives. So let's read from the word of God together. James chapter four, verses one through five. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come now and we ask for your blessing over this time that we're going to spend in your word. Oh Lord, as we read this text, I know that I am immediately convicted by how far I fall short, Lord. I pray that your spirit would come now and through the preaching of your word in all of our hearts would bring about conviction where we fall short and motivation to walk in righteousness and holiness and allow you to do your work in our hearts to mold us into the image of Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray, amen. I want to start by talking this morning about the problem of conflict, the problem of conflict. So if you were here last week, you you heard Pastor Collins' excellent message on James 3 verses 13 through 18. And in that text, he talks about the wisdom of the word, that wisdom that comes from God that brings about peace and the wisdom from the world that brings about disorder and every vile practice. And so he ends in verse 18 by calling us to be peacemakers. So forget the chapter division because from chapter three right into chapter four that we're studying today is the same train of thought he's now zeroing in on this disorder and every vile practice, this jealousy and uh, selfish ambition. He's saying, so what is it that causes these conflicts among you? Let's just dig into the words here a little bit. I did a little bit of nerding out and I thought this was really cool. So he says in verse one, what causes quarrels? That's kind of a weak translation because everywhere else that word is used in the New Testament, it's in a military context. It's talking about a battle. It's talking about a war. But then the next word, fights, on the other hand, is used to refer to controversies between people. So I take this to mean both extremes of interpersonal conflict, ranging from a controversy that springs up to an all-out battle. This is conflict, large and small. And it doesn't take long when you start reading the story of the Bible for conflict to pop up, does it? Right after Adam and Eve fall into sin, what do they do? They start blaming each other, right? They start blaming each other and they're at conflict with one another, but their kids are better, right? Wrong. Cain and Abel. The next chapter is the first murder. Conflict is one of the oldest consequences of sin. And James is asking the question, what is it that causes conflict? And I just want to warn you real quick. You're not going to like the answer. You're not going to like the answer because I don't like the answer. Because when we ask the question that I started the sermon with, why did my, me and my spouse get in a fight this week? Why did I blow up on my kids this week? Why can't I get along with my coworker? You know what we say? We say stuff like, because they made me so mad. We say stuff like, I'm just having a bad day and I'm really stressed out. We say stuff like, it's just how I was raised. It's just my culture. That's why I react that way. You know what James says? James tells us that conflict is caused by selfishness. Conflict is caused by selfishness. This is what he says. What causes the quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? We could say it this way. The war inside of us is what causes the wars outside of us. Conflict is caused in our lives by our own passions and our own desires. That are at war within us. He unpacks this now in the in the following phrase. He says, You desire and you do not have, so you murder. The word desire, some translations say lust. The idea is an intense craving for something that is morally wrong. We desire something, we lust after something that we cannot have, and as a result, we murder. Now, I don't think there were literally a bunch of serial killers on the loose in the churches that he's writing to. I think this is his point. James 1.14, when a desire gives birth to sin and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. The principle is that if we don't deal with the sinful desires in our hearts, it will bear fruit in sinful actions. Jesus taught us that to hate someone is to murder them in your heart. But what happens when that murder goes unrestrained for when that hatred in your heart goes unrestrained for years and years and years? Who knows what's gonna happen? Sinful desires left unchecked lead to sinful action. But here's the interesting thing, guys. It's not just a desire for something that is sinful that is wrong. It is possible to desire a good thing and it can become an idol in our lives and therefore that good thing becomes wrong. So let me put it this way. You can have a sinful desire or you can sinfully desire something. And I read a really good blog post prepping for this sermon by a guy named Gabriel Powell. And he gave us three questions that we can use as a diagnostic tool to evaluate the desires of our hearts. Let me give you these three. The first question is this, am I wanting something that violates God's will? That's a sinful desire. These are things like sexual lust or greed or covetousness. It's sinful for us to harbor a desire in our heart that is contrary to God's will. So that's sinful desires. But the next one is this, am I willing to sin in order to obtain my desire? So let's say you have a desire for something and that's a good thing. That's a right thing. Maybe it's a relationship or a career opportunity or a material possession. Nothing wrong with that desire in itself, but what if that desire becomes so important to me that I'm willing to sin in order to get it? That reveals that my highest priority is my desires, not God's glory. Third question, do I sin when I don't obtain my desires? This means we sin in response to not getting what we want. We become like spoiled toddlers throwing tantrums, even if our tantrums are a bit more sophisticated than theirs. Powell illustrates it this way. He says, we want our children to obey, but they don't. So we get angry. We want our spouse to love us in certain ways, but they don't. So we make them feel our displeasure. For pastors, we want our church to follow our leadership, but they don't, so we become bitter toward them. And now here's the clincher. We desire a spouse or a certain career or an educational opportunity, but God, ouch, but God's providence has not brought it to pass, so we become bitter toward the Lord. See the pattern there? We want something, we don't get it, we respond with sin. That's the pattern that James is giving us. But then he goes on to list a different kind of sinful desire. Don't worry, it gets worse. Uh, He says, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So he's talked about sinful desires, wanting something that's sinful. He talks about sinfully desiring, wanting a good thing so much that it becomes sinful in your life. Now he's talking about coveting. You know your Bibles, you know your Old Testament. This is the last of the Ten Commandments. The 10th commandment says this, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. What's the difference in coveting and a sinful desire? Sinful desire means I want it. Coveting means I want it because it's yours and I don't think you should have it. I think I should have it. That's sinister, isn't it? Coveting is sinful desiring mixed with bitter jealousy. It is wanting something because it belongs to your neighbor. And ultimately coveting is grounded in discontentment. I covet what you have because I am not content with what the Lord has given me. And ultimately it is putting yourself in the seat of God because you're saying, God, you should not have given that blessing to that person. You should have given it to me. You got it wrong. You're not governing the universe properly. That's what happens when we're coveting. You can see why that's a big deal, right? So how can we overcome covetousness? Humility. We humble ourselves and say, you're God and I'm not. Lord, I believe that you are my generous father in heaven. I believe that my circumstances are from your hand. And so I will trust you and I will thank you for what you have given me. And I will rejoice in the blessings of other people instead of coveting them. So you covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So to summarize all of this, guys, conflict, according to James, it's rooted in our selfishness. We fight because we have these desires and we don't get them, and so we lash out. We're like my daughter, Hannah. So yesterday, it was a rainy, nasty Saturday, and we all had cabin fever. We were getting bored in the afternoon. So what else do you do in Gloucester when you're bored, broke, and it's raining? You go to Ollie's, uh, naturally. So we went to Ollie's. We spent like $14 on a bunch of random stuff we don't need. Uh, and so we get home, and Megan is pulling st- on the counter. She's pulling stuff out of the bag. And Hannah, she's two, just runs up to the counter and is just going, me, me. Me, me first, me first, me first. I'm like, you don't even know what she's pulling out of the bag yet. But she's screaming, me first, me first. And I told Megan, that's so going in my sermon tomorrow. (laughs) Because we do the same thing. We're not nearly as transparent or as honest as toddlers. But in our hearts, why do we get in fights at work? Why do we get in fights at home? Why do we get in fights in our marriage? Because we have hearts that are screaming me first. Me first, I want this, I'm not getting it and I'm gonna bully you into getting it, whether that be through manipulation or gossip or whatever it might take. The reality is we blame conflict in our lives on a million other things but that. That's always the last place that we go to. And the late biblical counselor David Powlinson put this so powerfully writing about this passage. He said, James does not say you are fighting because the other person is a blockhead, because your hormones are raging because a demon of anger took up residence, because humans have an aggression gene hardwired in by our evolutionary history, because your father used to react in the same way, because our core needs are not being met, because you woke up on the wrong side of the bed and had a bad day at work. Instead, James says, you fight because of your desires that battle within you. You want something, but don't get it. Church, this sounds really simple, and that's because it is. We fight because we have hearts that scream me first. We can put it this way. The heart of conflict is the conflict in our hearts. And the reality is, and here's why this is so important. If the ruling chief desire in our hearts was always the glory of God and loving other people, we would never be in sinful fights and quarrels. We might disagree from time to time. We would never sinfully be in conflict with one another if our chief desires were the glory of God and loving other people. So how can we have peace? It starts with humbling ourselves before the Lord and acknowledging this and repenting of the selfishness in our hearts. But James is now gonna turn his attention to prayer. And I love this. I love his logic here. He's saying, you desire these things. You want them so bad. He's like, you know, you could just ask God. Don't know if that occurred to you. Like you fight with other people and you quarrel and you covet and you do all of these things. You could just ask God. And he says, you don't have because you don't ask. And even if you do ask from time to time, you're only coming to me when you want something. You're asking with wrong motives. So I think we learned some things that are really insightful about prayer in this text. Let's ask this question together. According to James, why aren't our prayers answered? Why aren't our prayers answered? The first answer is real simple. We don't ask. You can't answer a prayer you don't ask, right? If you do not ask, You do not have because you do not ask. The reality is God is our loving and generous heavenly father who delights to hear the prayers of his children. You know, there's one thing that Pastor Collins said in his sermon last week that really ministered to me all week. He says, God doesn't just love you, he likes you. Isn't that amazing? Like God wants us to pray. God wants to hear from us. He delights to hear from us in prayer. Yet we don't ask church, this verse is so convicting to me because of my lack of prayer. Prayer is a precious gift that we neglect to our own peril. And in the context of the passage that we're studying, here's the thing. We can become so consumed with getting our own desires in this world that we forget about God. Any of y'all ever read Pilgrim's Progress or parts of it? A couple of you guys. Okay, one of my favorite books. You ought to pick it up. Second best-selling book in the English language besides the Bible. It's an allegory of the Christian life. And there's one section in Pilgrim's Progress where Interpreter, who represents the Holy Spirit, takes Christiana through this hallway in his house and he's showing her all these different pictures to teach her all these lessons. And there's this one picture that Christiana sees and it's a man, he is bent over like this and he's got a rake in his hands, a muck rake. and he's raking up bits of straw and sticks and dust off the ground. And you see over top of him, there is a man standing there holding a beautiful celestial crown. But it says he can't look any way but down. And he is raking up sticks and straw and all of these things. And here's the point of this story. That man is so consumed with raking up sticks that he can't even look up to see the crown that is being offered to him. Can I suggest to you that that is the picture of a prayerless Christian? Is it possible that we are so consumed with the things of this world that by comparison are sticks and dust and hay that we can't even look up at what God would offer us if we would but ask? Is it possible that God is holding out to us so much joy, so much peace, so much spiritual strength, so much blessing, but we can't even look up to ask him for it because we're so obsessed with the things of this world. We do not have because we do not ask. I believe as Christians, we are missing out on so much more than we could ever imagine simply because we don't pray. And even when we do pray, James tells us, here's the kicker, and this is the second reason, Even when we do pray, we often ask with wrong motives. We ask with wrong motives. We are praying to use God to fulfill our sinful desires. We're asking God for things that in the long run would be bad for us. We're treating God like the purpose of His existence is our pleasure. We treat God like our butler who art in heaven instead of our father who art in heaven. Like he is there to fulfill our every whim. Warren Weersby said, the purpose of prayer is not to get man's will done in heaven, but God's will done on earth. But church, here's the amazing thing. God is so kind and so gracious that God still gives us good gifts even when we ask for the bad. I love the promise that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount that was probably on James's mind. Matthew 7, ask and it will be given to you He's our generous father in heaven. If we ask for good things, he's not gonna give us bad. But you know what I also love? When we ask for the stone, oftentimes God still gives us bread. When I ask for the serpent, oftentimes God still gives us fish. We ask for the wrong thing and God is gracious enough to give us the right thing. He's gracious enough sometimes to say no. Hey, Dan, uh, who is it that sings that country song, Unanswered Prayers? Yeah, someone, I can't remember, but uh, that's a little joke that we have because I butchered that one time and he never let me forget it. But (laughs) you guys know the song, Garth Brooks, Unanswered Prayers, right? Sometimes we thank God for unanswered prayers. That's so true. And I think in the light of eternity, there'll be things that we begged God for and we are gonna look back and say, oh man, God, now that I can see things from your perspective, thank you so much for saying no to me. Anybody even now in this life can look back and say, God, thank you for saying no. That's so true. God is so gracious that even when we ask with wrong motives, he loves us enough sometimes to say no. So church, we've seen that conflict in our lives is caused by our own selfish and sinful desires. We've seen that we often fail to go to God in prayer for those desires. And even when we do, we go with bad motives. We've seen that the problem of conflict begins in the heart, but it gets worse. Uh, Because there's another problem we got to deal with. Those are the problems inside of us, but there's also some problems outside of us. Namely, the problem of worldliness. The problem of worldliness. Let's look at verses four and five together. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us? Conflict is caused by sinful desires in our hearts, but also worldly influences in our lives. And James, in these two verses, this language is shocking. Like this is harsh, the kind of language that he is using. And I think he's doing that very intentionally. Let's unpack the language he uses here. First of all, James teaches us that worldliness is spiritual adultery. Worldliness is spiritual adultery. Look at the beginning of verse four. He says, you adulterous people. The Bible often refers to the rebellion of God's people against him using the metaphor of adultery. And the reason for that is that God describes his relationship with his people as one of marriage. In both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the church is called the bride of Christ. And so in our idolatry and in our worldliness, we are being unfaithful to our covenant with God. Think about the prophet Hosea in the Old Testament. One of my favorite stories, one of my favorite books in the Old Testament, an incredibly moving book. God had Hosea go and marry a prostitute to illustrate what was happening with the nation as a whole. He's saying, just as my prophet has married a wife who is being unfaithful to him, so Israel, when you bow down to idols and when you are being more influenced by the nations that are around you, you are being unfaithful to me. And James is teaching us when we are friends with the world as Christians, we are engaged in spiritual adultery. Let's be honest for a minute. We do not think of our sin in terms that dramatic. Not even close. We say things like, "Eh, it was just a little white lie. Say things like, "Eh, it was just a thought. "Eh, I had a bad day, I deserve this. If we really understood how holy God is, if we really understood what it cost Jesus to pay for our sins on the cross, if we really understood the magnitude of our covenant relationship with God, that our sin is spiritual adultery, we would take it so much more seriously than we do church. So worldliness is spiritual adultery. The next thing that James shows us is that we are not to love the world. He says, don't love the world. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He tells us we cannot be friends with the world. Now, this is really important. This requires some careful theological distinctions that we need to make here. You know, the word world is used in a lot of different senses in scripture. Let me just illustrate this, how confusing it can be. John 3, 16, you guys know it. For God so loved the what? world. God loved the world. 1 John 2.15, same author. Do not love the world. What? Hey, God so loved the world. Hey, do not love the world. What's going on here? Well, the reality is the word world can be used in several different senses in scripture, depending on the context. It can refer to the planet that we're living on. It can refer to the people in the world, as John 3.16 Or, and this is the most common sense and the sense that James is using it in James chapter four, the word world can refer to the system of unbelief that characterizes human culture in opposition to God. It can refer to the lies that pervade unbelieving human culture. Scripture says that Satan is the small g, God of this world, and that the whole world is under his influence. This is how the Bible describes the world in this sense. In 1 John two fifteen to 17, it says, "'Do not love the world or the things in the world. "'If anyone loves the world, "'the love of the Father is not in him. "'For all that is in the world, "'the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes "'and the pride of life is not from the Father, "'but is from the world. "'And the world is passing away along with its desires. "'But whoever does the will of God abides forever.'" Teaches us three things about the world. First, is that the world is characterized by sinful desires. All these sinful desires that we talked about in the first part of the sermon, that's what characterizes the world, right? The the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. The world is in opposition to God. It says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Then finally, the world is temporary, it ain't going to last forever. It says the world is passing away along with its desires. So here's the deal. Here's where I, why I'm laboring this point. This is where the rubber meets the road for us as Christians today. We have to be able to distinguish between the system of this world and the people in this world. We have to. Why? Here's what Kevin DeYoung said. The people of this fallen world are to be loved. The system of this fallen world is to be categorically rejected. If we cannot understand both of these things at the same time, you and I will not become mature Christians. Church, we are to reject the system of unbelief and lies and sinful desires that are in opposition to God and his word. We have to. To not do that would be to be friends of the world and to be adulterous, according to James but we are to love and serve the people in this world. There's two ways that we can fall off the horse here. We can become so consumed with a desire to avoid worldliness and so obsessed with our own purity that we neglect to love people and serve people that are in the world. And when we do that, we are failing in the Great Commission. We are failing to be the salt and the light in this world that we are called to be. But on the other hand, we can become, the pendulum can swing, we can become so consumed with a desire to reach people and to love people and meet them where they are that we begin to compromise. To compromise with the lies, with the desires, and with the beliefs that characterize the fallen world system. And we become exactly what James is warning us against, namely, a friend of the world, So can I use a culturally sensitive example to show you what I'm talking about? I mean, I'm asking, I'm gonna do it anyway, but I figured I'd ask first. Listen, guys, it's July now, but what was June in our culture? June was pride month. Our culture has a month that is set aside and devoted to what God's word clearly calls sin. So as Christians, how do we respond to that? What do we do about that as Christians? Again, we reject the lie. We love the person. So let me be very specific here. As Christians, we need to be able to stand firm on what God's word teaches about issues of sexuality and gender while loving and serving people who are believing those lies, who are deceived by them. Can I be even more specific? We've got to be crystal clear, y'all. I don't write the mail. I just deliver it. This book clearly says that homosexual, homosexual activity is sinful and that it's contrary to God's will. But at the same time, we have to be able to love and serve and befriend people who would identify as gay. We have to. We reject the system. We love the person. If we can't do both at the same time, we cannot be mature Christians. And I know there are people who don't think that's possible to do both at the same time. How can you love a person if you disagree with their lifestyle? We have to. As Christians, that is our calling. We reject the lies of the world while loving the people in the world. So James is teaching us, church, that we cannot be a friend of the world and a friend of God at the same time. To be a friend of one is to be an enemy of the other. We can try to sit on the fence between the world and between God. That fence is pretty shaky. Eventually, we're going to fall off on one side or the other. Jesus said it best. He says, you can't serve two masters. At the end of the day, we must have allegiance either to God or to the world. And listen, guys, it's easy. It's really easy for us in the church to sit inside of these four walls and point fingers at the world, about the worldliness of the world. But can I tell you that the worldliness of the world does not grieve my heart nearly as much as the worldliness of the church because the world's just acting like the world. We shouldn't be surprised. What should shock us and grieve us is when the church acts like the world. Can I, sh- can I say with grief in my heart two areas that I think the American church is often just as worldly as the rest of the world? First of all, oftentimes Christians in the church are just as sexually immoral as the rest of the world. Christian men are addicted to pornography, Christian couples are sleeping together outside of marriage. We know what this book says about purity in that area of our lives, but we don't submit to it. We're more influenced by what the culture says, by what we learn from the sitcoms and the movies than we are from this book. What about our money? We're often just as greedy and just as materialistic as the rest of the world, guys. We go into debt buying toys we don't need with money we don't have, And then we have nothing left over to be generous, to be generous with the church and to be generous with those who are in need. Guys, as Christians, we are called to be different. Why did I pick those two examples? Because it's where we put our money where our mouth is. As a Christian, if our profession of faith has not changed what we do in our bedroom and what we do with our bank account, it's fair to question whether it's changed us at all. It's fair to question whether it changes at all because those are the areas that most clearly reveal what's in our hearts. We can't be friends with Jesus and friends with the world. Let me give you one more reason why. Because God is jealous for his people. Because God is jealous for his people. Verse five, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, just a quick side note. Uh, It says, the scripture says, but that's actually not a quote from anywhere else in the Bible. I think he's not quoting one particular verse, but he's giving a general theme of scripture, kind of like how I'd say the Bible says X, Y, Z without actually quoting a verse. Uh, And what is that theme? That theme is God's jealousy for his people. After God gave the second commandment about not bowing down to carved images, this is what he says. This is the reason why you don't do that. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Why? Why? For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Now, hold on a minute, Nate. You just talked, you know, 15 minutes ago about why jealousy is bad, about coveting, about how jealousy is a bad thing. Last week and Pastor Colin talked about how there's bitter jealousy in our lives. But now we're saying God is jealous. There is such a thing as a holy jealousy, as a righteous jealousy. God is jealous because God is love. Think about it this way. We already talked about how sin is spiritual adultery. Husbands in this room, if your wife was unfaithful to you and you were not jealous, that would say something about your love. God is jealous because God is love. Because God loves his people, he is jealous for their affection. And so when we befriend this world and the fallen system of this world, We evoke the jealousy of God. How does all of this relate, circling back to our theme of conflict? This is how. When we are being more influenced by the world than we are by the word, conflict will be the result. When we are being more influenced by Hollywood than we are by heaven, we should not be surprised if we can't get along with other people. It is the wisdom from above that is first of all pure and then peaceful, then gentle, open to reason, impartial, and sincere. It is when we are influenced by the Lord and his word that we are able to be at peace in our lives. So listen, I'm only preaching through verse five this morning, but I can't end there. I'm a preacher of the gospel for crying out loud. I can't end on that note. So I'm just gonna sneak just a little bit into verse six with me. Just five words into verse six if you have your Bibles open. Because after just heavy, 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 heavy from those first five verses, let the first five words of verse six just wash over you. You ready? But he gives more grace. What? He gives more grace to who? To people who fight and quarrel, to people who don't pray, to people who pray wrongly, to people who covet, to spiritual adulterers. To those who evoke God's jealousy, to friends of the world, he gives more grace. That's amazing. We don't deserve that, but he does. He gives more grace. And how does he do it? He gives more grace through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is grace incarnate. Though Jesus was a friend of sinners, Jesus was never a friend of the world. He was the one who was perfectly pure of heart. And yet, Jesus went to the cross, dying in the place of sinful people like you and me, bearing the penalty for all of our sins. And then he rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death, three days later, so that whoever would turn from their sins, would repent, and would trust in him, would have eternal and everlasting life. Church, if you're feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your heart, you're feeling crushed under the weight of your sinfulness. Let that burden be lifted by those five little words, but he gives more grace. He gives grace not only to forgive us, but to transform us so that we really can begin to walk in holiness and in righteousness in our lives. So, with that, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back. And I'm going to leave you with three final takeaways this morning, very quickly. First takeaway is this check your heart, check your heart. When we're engaged in conflict with another person, our instinct is to blame everything but ourselves. We blame everything but our own sinful, selfish hearts. But James is showing us we fight and quarrel because of the desires that are at war within us. The heart of conflict is the conflict in my heart. So if there's ever going to be peace in our lives, we need to check our hearts. We need to repent of the selfish, sinful desires, the covetousness in our hearts. And we need to ask the Lord to replace them with a the desire to glorify him and to love other people. Check your heart to make sure it's right with God and only then can you really be right with others. Next, check your prayers. First question is real simple. Are you praying? Are we setting aside time every day to get alone with God and to pray? Think about all the things you're missing out on because you're not asking for them. Are you praying? Second, when you pray, are you praying thy will be done or my will be done? Are we treating God like a vending machine? You know, we pop in the right prayer. He pops out the right blessing. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. Are we treating God as if he exists to give us what we want in response to our prayers? Or, Are we viewing prayer as the privilege that we have to come boldly before the throne of grace and cast our cares upon the creator of the universe, knowing that he not only loves us, but he likes us and he wants to spend time with you. That's the blessing of prayer. Let's check our prayers and learn how to view them as an opportunity to commune with the God of the universe. Finally, check your friendship. And I don't mean friendship in the sense of the people that we're friends with, though that's important too. I'm using it in the sense that James uses it when he says being a friend of the world. Church, we cannot be a friend of the world and a friend of God. Like I said, we can try to sit on that fence, but it's a shaky fence. We'll fall off on one side or the other. We cannot serve two masters, Jesus says. We are to reject the system of lies, of unbelief in this world, And pursue holiness and righteousness in our thinking, in our desires, in our values. Are they lined up with God's word and will or with the world? What the world tells us we need, what we should want, how we should feel, what we should think. We need to have our minds renewed by scripture daily. So let me encourage you to do some self examination. How am I being influenced by the values of our culture? by the thinking, by the worldview of our culture? And how do I need to have my mind renewed by God's word? So church, I know this has been a heavy sermon this morning. It's been heavy for my own heart, but listen, we need it. We need it. If we're ever going to have peace in our families, in our marriages, in our church, we've got to get rid of the sinful desires in our hearts and the worldliness in our lives. And when we do that, I believe that God can do amazing things through us for the cause of the gospel. Amen. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we love you. Lord, we confess that we cannot do what we just talked about apart from you. So I ask even now that your Holy Spirit would fill us, would convict us of our sin, would challenge us and motivate us to be the people that you have called us to be. Lord, we love you. We ask for your strength as we go from this place to love you and to serve you with every breath that we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and go out singing.